I hope it's your desire, too, to live for Him. Amen? Isn't that good? I don't know that you'd be here if it wasn't. And boy, I'm glad that you're here. Let's take our Bibles, turn over to a familiar passage, one that's already been quoted by Mrs. Ike. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. <clears throat> boy, I'll tell you what, that's right on time. Amen? So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. I don't know, but boy, when you uh, uh, face some of the things she's faced lately and get the news she's gotten lately, it's an amazing thing. It's amazing. And uh, boy, the feeling that the weight that's lifted off your shoulders, and I know that the Lord has supernaturally intervened, but boy, I'll tell you what, anytime you hear those words, that's a scary thing. And boy, I'll tell you what, isn't it wonderful when the Lord comes along, as has been expressed, and brings a supernatural peace that passes all understanding. 
Boy, that's wonderful. That's a blessing. Well, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18, a tremendous passage. The Bible says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Now, I don't have a lot of time tonight. I want to try to condense some things, but I want to point out very quickly the end of the passage where it says, This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Not your mother or father, not your grandma or grandpa, not your husband or wife, but you and me. Very personal. He says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. You say, man, I wonder what the will of God is for my life. I want to do the will of God. Let me tell you how you do the will of God. One of the things you need to do consistently, continually, is in everything give thanks. That's true with me and you and all of us. Now listen, there's times that we fail to fulfill the will of God in our lives, that we fail to follow and walk according to the word of God. But the truth is, if we want to truly be in the center of God's will, then we have to be willing to give thanks in everything. <clears throat> and we must do it, not just be willing, but do it. Thankfulness seems to be a lost art today, doesn't it? The story's told about a ministerial student in Evanston, Illinois. This particular student was part of a life-saving squad, and in 1860, a ship went down around the seashore of Lake Michigan near Evanston. And Edward Spencer waded again and again into the frigid waters where he finally rescued 17 passengers. In the process, however, his health was permanently damaged. Some years later, at his funeral, it was noted that not one of the people he rescued ever even thanked him. This is way back in 1860. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that it's only gotten a little bit worse, this aspect of gratitude or ingratitude. And, you know, it's sad to think that someone would have saved 17 lives and not one person through the course of their lifetime would have received a thank you. Now, I'm not sure if someone tried to reach out to him and it just wasn't just didn't reach him. I'm not sure, but what I know is based on the, the account, no one did. And boy, what a sad thought that is today. The Bible says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And tonight, what I want to do, just over these next few minutes, I just want to share three attitudes that will keep you from being thankful. Three attitudes that will keep you from being thankful. And we know that we're to be thankful. We understand it's God's will that we be thankful in everything. So what might hinder us? What might keep us from being thankful? I'm going to share three attitudes. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer and we'll do that tonight. Father, we come to you. We want to thank you again for the wonderful privilege that we have to gather in your house. Lord, I appreciate the testimonies tonight. Lord, I'm so thankful, Father, that I serve with the people that meet with you, pray to you, and see answers from you. Dear God of heaven, we are a people in the world in which we live that need to hear from you and have very visible evidence of your reality each day in our life. Help us, Father, to continue to seek you out. And Lord, if we'll seek you early, you said you'll be found. Now, Lord, do your work in our hearts even tonight. Help us, Lord, to, to learn some reasons why we may not be thankful or could become ungrateful. And Lord, may we not fall into the trap of being ungrateful. Lord, we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> first of all, let me say the first spirit is that of entitlement. A spirit of entitlement will be a problem for you. It'll cause you to be ungrateful. 
It'll cause you to be unthankful. Entitlement defined simply means the condition of having a right to have, do, or get something. The feeling or belief that you deserve to be given something, such as special privileges. A type of financial help provided by the government for members of a particular group. And so it's defining this word entitlement. And may I say that basically it's something that we're receiving, in this case, a condition of having the right to have, a belief that you deserve to be given something. Well, I'll tell you what, that, that entitlement can be a problem when it comes to being thankful. We're quick to both determine uh, what we believe God would want for us, and then we are quick to demand it. I know God would want me to have that. I know God wouldn't want me to not have this. And then we demand that of God so often. And that's not the case. That shouldn't be the case. The honest truth is that we are owed nothing, really. God really owes us nothing. If anything, we owe him everything. And you know, the, the truth is, is that Christ warned the disciples that they would have sorrow. And, and, and he said, you know what, you might as well look forward to it. It's going to happen. Let me give you a little bit of, uh, um, of, 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 of um, a heads up on, on this issue of, uh, of sorrow. Turn to John chapter 16, would you please? Again, uh, if, if, I mean, in our minds, we would like everything to be perfectly fine all the time. You know, none of us really look forward to problems, circumstances that are difficult. We all would like to see our children healthy all the time. We'd like to be wealthy all the time. We'd like to act wisely consistently. Everything we'd like it to fall into place all the time. However, look at John chapter 16. The Lord Jesus Christ warns the disciples that they're going to have some sorrow to look forward to. In chapter 16, verse 20, we read, Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow, but her hours, but uh, because her hours come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish. Some of you ladies might disagree. For joy that a man is born into the world. Ladies, I don't mean to draw attention, but it's only joyful if it's a man. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just had to throw that in because I felt some of you were sleeping. I figured I could get your attention real quick. And now, oh boy, just cut off half the crowd. Well, make that two-thirds of the crowd. But anyway, and, now, and ye now therefore have sorrow. He's talking to the disciples, and ye now therefore have sorrow. But I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy, and, and your joy no man taketh from you. Now, I want you to see something. Note that after the new earth has arrived, uh, I mean, in, in this particular case, um, it's not till after the new earth has arrived, the new Jerusalem has descended, that God's going to do something very significant. Notice what he's going to do. Chapter 21, verse 4, I'll read it to you. It says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Now listen, what the Lord Jesus Christ promised to the disciples was some sorrow, difficulties, struggles. And it wouldn't be till Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, that he says, now listen, here we go now. We're going to have this new, he new heaven and new earth, and new Jerusalem's going to be ascending, and I'm going to wipe away all tears from your eyes. And at that point, then and there, there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. The former things, he says, the former things, those former things being the, the issues, the things that we're dealing with here on earth even now, those things will be gone. They'll be done away with. He says, then and then only, uh, they'll be passed away. You know, if the believer were not intended to endure the grief of death, the dread of sorrow, the torture of tears, and the problem of pain, then there would be no need to do away with them, would there? 
The fact is today is that so often we have this sense of entitlement that God owes us something else other than the things that he promised. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't do wonderful things for us, and I'm not saying that at sometimes we don't get the wonderful news that we've heard about tonight. The fact is, is that we may not, but the truth is it doesn't change who God is, and it doesn't change the fact that God is still good, and it doesn't change the fact that we're still to rejoice in everything. Man, I tell you what, that's, not a, that's a tall order. It is not easy to thank God in the midst of difficult circumstances, in the midst of pain or suffering. I mean to tell you, that's a difficult thing at times. And you don't do that unless you're walking with God, unless you're close to the Lord, unless you're experiencing his presence in your life. Again, we'd like to believe that we're all entitled to a happy and healthy life, but that's just not the case. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Turn there, would you please? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. <clears throat> we do a lot of preaching and a lot of teaching, and so many times the fact is, is that we seem to skip over the entire te- Old and New Testament. When you look at people in the Word of God, there was a lot of hurt and heartache. But it doesn't, we, don't, we don't land there. It's like everything else. We, we do have a tendency to always land on the positive side for the most part. I mean, we don't, nobody wants to be you know, uh, negative and critical all the time. That's not what we need around here, obviously. But the truth is, is we, we can expect some difficult times. That's all there is to it. These bodies are going to break down. You know, our minds are going to be stressed at times. Life is going to present some horrible situations and struggles, even tragedy and trials. But thank God he's there for us. He's not leaving us alone. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. First of all, notice it says, what? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God? You're not your own, for you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. You say, what's that have to do with anything? Well, I want you to notice a couple things. First of all, there's responsibility. Notice in verse 19, you are not your own. We are responsible. Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God. You have it of God. You're not your own. There's a responsibility here. You're responsible to live your life. I'm responsible to live my life in a way that pleases God and promotes well-being. Yes. But if we're harming our bodies, we can't expect to reap the healthy life. And if we're neglecting God's truths, then we are sure to forfeit the many promises he affords us. I mean, he doesn't guarantee us good times no matter what we do, no matter how we do it. The truth is, is that there's a promise to young people that they need to obey and honor their parents. And with that is a, a promise that is with that long life. However, long life in this world, I mean, let's think about it. With 100 years as but a vapor, what's long life? We have to be kind of careful that we don't determine what... God is really saying, try to put limits on God and try to say, well, God, that was a good young person. How dare you take him so early? Well, uh, that doesn't negate the, the truth that we're to give thanks in everything. So we see here the responsibility, first of all. I mean, we're responsible to God. This is his body, not ours. Number two, there's a reality. Note this reality. Verse 20, it says, For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Now, again, we're God's to do with as he pleases, then, is what it's saying. He has a right to do as he pleases. We are the created, he is the creator. Well, that's a hard thing to wrap our minds around sometimes. And as I said earlier, if we're not careful, we have a kind of a, 
a, a propensity to look at God and say, now I know what God wants for me, and he obviously wants me to prosper, and he wants me to be preeminent, and he wants me to have good, and, and he doesn't want difficulty and hardship in my life. I know better because God's a God of love, and he loves me, so he doesn't want any bad in my life. But the Bible bears out that's not the case at all. Some would argue, and they would be spot on, that the greatest lessons we ever learn are in the midst of those hard times. But we really don't even know who God is till we've bore the cross a little bit in this life. It should be our desire to glorify the one and only one who rescued us from our sin and extended to us an eternal home. We have scriptural proof of this. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 through 9. Notice this passage here, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. We're talking about a sense of entitlement. And sadly enough, if you have a sense of entitlement and you look to God and, is, and look to him as though he is some grandpa sitting on the throne in heaven and that he owes you a, a piece of candy every time you come and say hello, we're going to find we could be sadly disappointed. That sense of entitlement can create some real ingratitude. Notice what it says here in our passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 through 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith and to salvation ready to be revealed in the last time wherein ye greatly rejoice though now for a season if need be ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth though it be tried with fire might be found into praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ whom having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Notice the players in verses 1 and 2. They're God's people. We're not talking about the lost. We're not talking about the world. We're talking about God's people in this particular passage. They've been scattered abroad, and as a result, uh, excuse me, they've been scattered as, uh, abroad as a result of persecution. I mean, they didn't move for a more lucrative job opportunity. They didn't leave for a better climate or a change of scenery. That is not why these believers here in this passage are, have scattered. No, they're scattering because they're under persecution. They're scattering because they're running for their own lives. They're seeking to somehow survive. Isn't that amazing to think about Christianity that way? And I, I might preach a message because I wrote a little note to myself recently. I was reading through the book of Revelation the other day, and I got thinking about the whole Bible before that, and I thought to myself, how many years has there really been Christianity without persecution? Can I tell you that you live in one of the greatest ages of all the world? in the greatest country in all the world. You go ahead, move to other countries and see if you don't get persecuted for your faith. And go ahead and look throughout history. Go ahead, all the way back to the early Christians there in the Colosseum, right on up to the time of Constantine and the Catholic Church. And look at how they treated the believer, those that didn't comply with their demands for 
2,000 years from 500 to 1,500, you had what's called the Dark Ages. May I say that men and women of God were dying, being bludgeoned and being, being maimed and being tortured and being killed for their faith all those years. And then after that, you have the Reformation, and you have those that are coming out of the Catholic Church that are still persecuting people that are believers. Even the Catholic Church itself still doing so. You have believers hurting believers now. It is amazing. And you go around the world to different countries, you'll find that there are still groups and people groups that are persecuting believers today. And in America, for the last how many years, we've had the right to preach, teach, and continue. Even early on in America, by the way. If you didn't believe certain things, if you didn't follow, kind of fall in suit with a particular religious group, you'd be ostracized. You'd ultimately be cast out of the community. You'd be all your, your goods confiscated. And that's why it's so important. And that's why we should never, ever be ungrateful for our nation, as was mentioned earlier. We ought to be thankful for those, those consti- that constitution, those forefathers, and for those Baptists. Listen to me. For those Baptists, one more time, for those Baptists that said there's to be a separation of church and state. Baptists have always believed that. Why? Because the government will always come into the church and try to take over and ultimately create a church state. But he said, no way. We are a church and we are to be independent of government. We are to be able to worship as we choose and as we please. But may I say, Christians throughout history have paid a dear price for their faith. And when we look at this passage over here in 1 Peter chapter 1, let me tell you what, that is indicative of Christianity throughout the ages. We don't understand this kind of persecution. And as a result, it has somewhat, to some degree, produced an attitude of entitlement. We see the players, but note the promise in verses 3 through 5. And I'm not going to read it again, but let me just say, they may not have much by the way of worldly possessions. Their perspective or viewpoint may not be valued in the eyes of their peers. They may not possess great power, position, or preeminence in government or within their culture, but they were, without a doubt, begotten of God, befriended by God, and better for it. They were on their way to heaven. And they were being kept and secured by the power of God. Not not their own efforts, not their own works, but by the power of God himself. Just like you and I today. They may not have been viewed as significant to many, but they were very significant to God who knew them. We read over in 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Amen. They had God's word on it. They knew whose property they were, and they knew who was in their corner. We see the players. They were believers, and yet they're being persecuted. We see the promise, even in spite of the fact that they didn't own the things that they would like to own, although they didn't have the peace that they'd like to have, although they may not have possessed the preeminence and the, the power that they desired to change the culture they lived in. They knew Christ, and they knew God, and they were kept by him. They had his promise just like we do, that they'd be more than conquerors and that he'd never leave or forsake them. We see the plight in verse 6. Theirs was a life filled with the flames of persecution and the fires of temptation, and yet they rejoiced, the Bible said. Oh, wait, no, no, it did not say they rejoiced. It says they greatly rejoiced. Greatly rejoiced. On the run... 
from the establishment, utilizing every effort they could to, to destroy these people, fearing for the very, their very lives of their families and their children, their, their, their grandkids, their, their, their marriages to be divided and separated, men being thrown into prison, women and men both dying for their faith, children being murdered and, and mercilessly dealt with as a result of the faith of the parents. My friend, in the midst of all that, the Bible doesn't just say that they simply rejoiced. It said they greatly rejoiced. They lived their lives on the horizon of death. And as such, life itself then was a very valuable gift. And it was not taken for granted. How often do we take our life for granted? Their faith in God's promise and the hope that it brought enabled them to greatly rejoice amid the mankind, the, the manifold temptations they faced. Then we see the perspective finally. I love this. And again, we've touched on it already, but in this final segment, it goes on to tell us here, it says that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth. Though it be tried with fire, might be found into praise and honor and glory, the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can stop right there, but the truth is that the trials that they endured are said to be much more precious than gold that perisheth. Now, I don't know about you, but in America, it seems to me, whether you're Christian or not, if we're not careful, it seems that we're all wired for gold. Everybody somehow believes that gold is the real goal of life. The more gold you got, the more comfortable you are. Uh, the more gold you got, the better positioned you are for life. The more gold you got, the more successful you are. That's the mentality, and we are preaching and teaching it to our children today. And yet the fact is, is that that is not what God has to say about gold. God, God says that gold perishes. Matter of fact, God says you'd be better off to be persecuted, enduring hardship, than you would be having gold. How many lives have been wrecked and ruined? How many souls have been stolen out of the, out of the, 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 the uh, portals of heaven from gold? How many people fail to have a relationship with God, the Lord Jesus Christ, like they ought to because of the pursuit of gold in their life? Again, perspective is the key. These believers, as he describes them, I mean, they're, they're, they're not living by sight at all. They're living by faith. Hello? Note that they're, <laughs> I'm sorry, that's just, I was going to say something else, but I won't. But anyway, because uh, I was going to do a little dialogue with me and the Lord, but I didn't think that would be appropriate. But nonetheless, um, gold, you know, so we need to note their faith. And their faith wasn't simply uh, being tried. It was tried with fire, it says. Theirs was the most heated and extreme temptations and trials that you can imagine. Theirs was a trial fanned by the flames of hell. But you know what? Just like these faithful souls, we're on a faith journey, aren't we? And although they had not seen God, they, the Bible says, loved him and rejoiced as they anticipated the glory that awaited them. They saw past the immediate and they could see to the future. And in Romans 8, 18, the Bible says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. 
Wow, isn't that something? Boy, if we could really grasp that. This sense of entitlement again. Believing that God does, that, that no way God would even want me to suffer like that. That doesn't even make sense. And yet throughout the ages, we've seen suffering like this on behalf of Christianity. Christians have suffered for decades, for, for centuries, for millenniums. We have escaped that. We're in a small little window in America that has provided us with the freedom to worship without fear of persecution. And unfortunately, what it has done is it has put a kind of put us in a bubble, feeling safe, not needing God anymore, seeking after gold, and pursuing that as our goal. When in reality, he says, man, you are, you are pursuing something that is just going to be burned up. It's going to be gone. And, and I know, and I'm not, I'm not listen, I've, I've said a million times, you know, I heard a, one of my preachers years ago say, Go, uh, green goes with every suit I own. And, and so listen, I'm not, I'm not opposed to money, and I'm not opposed to success in that realm. You need to be wise with your finances. By all means, buy, do the best you can to make what you can without compromising your faith and without neglecting God. So there's no place in the believer's life for a sense of entitlement. God owes us nothing, but on the other hand, we owe him everything. So anything we have in this life is more than we really deserve, isn't it? Just that, just that we exist and have the hope of a better day should cause us to rejoice and express our gratitude. So entitlement will choke the spirit of gratitude and thankfulness. Number two, a spirit of envy. A spirit of envy. That's going to create problems. Over in the book of James, chapter 4. Turn there if you would. James chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. I need to hurry. I may not get to all three. Maybe we'll have to end with this one. But, but a spirit of envy. James chapter 4. He says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Notice that. He says, do you think that the scripture saith in vain? Do you think that the scripture says this with no, for, for no reason at all, that the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? He says, man, I'm telling you what, in our humanity, in our atomic nature, we are constantly lusting to envy. We are wanting all, well, let me define it for you. Envy defined. To feel uneasiness, mortification, or discontentment at the sight of superior excellence. Superior, uh, at the sight of superior reputation or happiness enjoyed by another. To repine at another's prosperity. To fret or grieve oneself at the real or supposed superiority of another. And to hate him on that account. To look at someone and despise them or hate them because you perceive that somehow they are superior or feel superior in your eyes. You look at them and think, boy, I wish I had their intelligence. I wish I had their wife or husband. I wish I had their, their abilities and their talents. I wish I had their money. I wish I had their education. Boy, I wish I had. 
And almost inevitably, it, it, it leads to this attitude of despising or hating them for that. I'm always amazed. Why is it that we can't be happy for someone that does make a lot of money and serves the Lord faithfully? Why? Why is it that they have to be compromisers because they're successful in the world we live? Well, obviously, because I'm not. Yeah, I know, but that's just envy there then. It's envy. Man, I, I, wish, I wish at least, well, I wish every one of you here made $250,000 a year, and you do too, and would actually live for Christ still. But you know what would happen if everybody in this room made $250,000? Most of you would probably skip out on God, and you'd leave the faith. You'd find that you'd, your, your attention would change, your direction would change, that you might say, well, man, I don't need to pray like I was praying, and I don't need to believe in God like I was believing. Now I can buy those shoes that I need for my kid without praying about it. Now I can go out and do this and do that. I don't need God. I've got the money in my hand. Well, thank you, God, for the 250000 but that'll be enough today because I'm busy earning 250000 Now listen, there's nothing wrong with making it. But we got to be careful, envy. There's nothing wrong with having a wonderful family. Nothing wrong with having all the good things that God gives us. But be careful. Because sometimes we look at others that do have what we don't have and we envy. That's a, that's a dangerous place. Because you get a, an attitude of envy, pretty soon you're not grateful for what you do have. Because you believe you deserve better. That sounds like entitlement. And now you're envying what somebody else has. Man, I wish I had a church like that. I wish I had a mom like that. I wish I had a dad like that. I wish I had a job like that. I wish I had a, a this, and I wish I had that, and I wish I had... You know what? You're probably not very grateful where you're at then. Come on, amen. That's all there is to it. The Bible has much to say about envy, by the way. Proverbs 3.31, Envy thou not the oppressor, and choose not none of his ways. Proverbs 14.30, A sound heart is the life of the flesh, but envy the rottenness of the bones. Proverbs 23, 17, let not thine heart envy sinners, be thou, uh, but be thou in the fear of the Lord all the day long. Proverbs 27, 4, wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? Well, that's crazy, isn't it? It is impossible to be thankful when you feel you're missing out. That's all there is to it. It's impossible. Psalm chapter 73, verse 1 through 3 we see the psalm of Asaph. And Asaph says, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious of the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He was envious of the foolish. What he's saying is, I was envious of those that didn't even believe there was a God. See, the fool saith in his heart that there is no God. So he's saying, I'm telling you, I looked at the fool, the person that said there is no God, or that worshipped idols even, and said, boy, I'm envious of them. How in the world could a believer that's on their way to heaven be envious of somebody that's going to hell? But we are so often, aren't we? I mean, let's be honest, we are. And we're all tempted that way so often, because in this flesh, we lust to envy. That's why we have to die to self and crucify the flesh. The psalmist's foundation had begun to crumble beneath him. His heart was filled with envy. He was envious of the foolish, the Bible tells us, and he was envious of their temporary prosperity. He was upset 
So much so that his spiritual foundation was corroding and falling apart. It wasn't until he saw and understood their end that the foundation was once again reestablished and his feet were cemented and replanted. Well, I'll tell you what, that foundation gets real weak when you start looking around you and feeling like you're being left out and everybody else has more than you've got and, and they've got what you truly deserve and you're somehow believing that you, 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 you want what they have now. I want what they have. I deserve what they have. That foundation or your faith foundation is starting to crumble now. It won't be long. You'll give up on God. And you'll be tempted to look at him and say, you know what? If you are there, you aren't very good. That's a sad place to be, and it is a place a believer can get to. Psalm 73, 17, and 18, he says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou casteth them down into destruction. There's a poem called The Changed Cross, and I'm going to end with this. It's a poem called The Changed Cross. And let me just describe it. It represents a weary one who thought that her cross was subtly heavier, or surely heavier than those of others whom she saw about her. You know. And you know, this particular woman, she wished that hers her cross might change. She, she thought that she would rather choose someone else's cross instead of hers. So she slept, and in her dream, she was led to a place where many crosses lay. Crosses of, a different, of different shapes and crosses of different sizes. There was a little one, most beautiful to behold. Uh, um, I mean, it was gorgeous. It had jewels, and it had gold in it, and boy, it looked so lovely. And she said, oh, this I can wear with comfort. So she took it up, but her weak form shook beneath it. I mean, the jewels and the gold were beautiful, but they were far too heavy for her. Next, she saw a lovely cross with just beautiful flowers entwined around its sculptured form. It was so lovely. It was so beautiful. Surely, surely that was the one for her. She lifted it. And as she began to carry, she realized beneath the flowers were piercing thorns which tore her flesh. At last she went on and she came to a plain cross without jewels, without carvings, with only a few words of love inscribed upon it. And she took it up and it proved the best of all, the easiest to be born. And as she looked upon it, bathed, and the radiance that fell from heaven, she recognized her own old cross. She had found it again. And to her surprise, it was the best of all and lightest for her. See, God knows best what cross we need to bear. And we do not know how heavy other people's crosses are. You know, we envy someone who's rich. His is a golden cross set with jewels, but we don't know how heavy that is. We, we, we look at others whose life seems so very lovely and simple, but we're not too privy to the hidden thorns, are we? If we could try all the other crosses that we think lighter than our own, we'd at last find that the one best suited for us is our own. Envy will sabotage and steal your spirit of thankfulness. 
Boy, how careful we need to be as believers as we enter this season of thankfulness, as we look forward to this day of thanksgiving. May we not find ourselves envious. May we not find ourselves with a spirit of entitlement. But may we simply be obedient to the word of God. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Your simple home. The children that you already have. The husband or wife that God has already given you. The job that you possess. The place that you live. The church you attend. The meal that you can afford. Is the best cross that you should bear. It's the one that you were given. May we learn to be thankful for what we have and not ungrateful for what we do not have. Father, we come to you. Thank you again, Lord, for just the simple truths of the Word of God. May you just encourage us, Lord, as we go forward uh, even tonight and look forward to Thanksgiving Day, Thursday, and a time of fellowship most often with friends or families or relatives. We ask, Lord, that you would just give us grace and Help us to be grateful for what we do have, to not focus on what we don't have, or to be focused on what others possess that we feel we deserve. May we not be envious, Lord. May we never become that person that feels entitled, but instead, Lord, may we just be grateful for you and your part in our life and thankful for everything you've done for us, our salvation and the fact that you indwell us and that you, Father, have justified us and you've sanctified us and one day you'll glorify us. Help us, Lord. We need you desperately. And we'll thank you and praise you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand to our feet, every head bowed.